Hello, everyone. How are you? Good morning. Good to see you all. Glad you're here. We are in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is considered by most students of the Bible and theologians <clears throat> as the gold standard of all prophecy. Uh, it is the prophecy of God issued through the angel of Gabriel, which will span effectively the timeline for all of the people of God. It involves a delineation of 490 years, 490 years that spans the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem uh, and then the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, into Jerusalem, and then an attended seven years that kind of sits out in space relating to the last days, the Antichrist, uh, <clears throat> and the period of tribulation. So it becomes a key event for us to study uh, as we see really God's handiwork all coming together. And, and one of the things that are astounding to me as I study this and pray about it is how specific God's prophecy is. Uh, when we're going to take this down for you based on what people have studied, you will see that the prophecy was able to pinpoint specifically uh, the week that Jesus walked into Jerusalem uh, prior to the crucifixion. Now, all of that is done 490 years or so before the event would take place. Uh, and so it's, it's amazing. And what's more amazing is that the Jewish people didn't understand. And I know you may ask me this question, why is that so? Why didn't they understand? Well, the first reason they didn't understand is they were not taught. Uh, and what you see, uh, historically we know this, is that the, the uh, religious elite, the Pharisees, did not teach the people about the prophecies. They stopped teaching prophecy uh, wisdom somewhere around 300 or so B.C. And so here they are, not being taught about these prophecies, not understanding what Daniel had, had written, and yet Jesus comes in on the scene uh, and they're blithely ignorant. And we don't want to be that. And the reason I'm teaching you this uh, is for you to understand how precise God is, how you can take the Bible to the bank, how the Bible is reliable. And so when you're in the presence of people who don't know this, who will say something ignorantly like, well, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? All right, you don't. I mean, that's a bunch of fables, really. There's no fables that pr predict with specificity 490 years ahead of time what's going to take place. And so we're going to study Daniel chapter 9 today. I hope it gives you comfort and understanding, uh, and that I hope you can teach it to other people because that's my hope and why I do what I do. Now, Daniel, who at this point is about 90 years old, he will have served in captivity at this point somewhere over 70 years. He will be in Babylon, and the time of this prophecy is right after uh, the Babylonians are defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And so I want you to understand this. And so at that period of time, Daniel is going back into Scripture and praying, and he reflects back on a prophecy that was in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah had prophesied that the Jewish people would be in captivity for 70 years. And so Daniel, knowing this and reflecting back on the 70-year period, realizes now that the 70 years has come. And so now I want you to see effectively how this man approaches this. And it's a lesson to us in his prayer life. 
People have asked me, really, why, why do we pray? Why do we pray? If God is in charge of everything, why do we pray? And this is a perfect example of why we pray. Because Daniel knew that the prophecy of God was that the Jews would be in captivity for 70 years. Well, knowing that the, that's what the prophecy was, Daniel could have said, well, you're in charge, God. If that's the case, that it's 70 years, the 70 years has come and gone and you're in charge, uh, we don't have to pray about it. But instead, you're going to see the kind of prayer that we need to be making today for, for the United States uh, because our country is slouching towards Gomorrah. Uh, when I saw the recent uh, law passed in New York in which you can abort a baby one day, one day before it can be born, effectively what we've done now is legalized murder. We've legalized murder. And so what you see is the country, the country is just slouching towards immorality. I mean, really, we're, we're giving a, a bad name to Sodom and Gomorrah, honestly. And w- when you recognize this, and when you see that the leaders, the governor of, of, of New York uh, is a devout Roman Catholic, and we don't know where, where the Roman Catholics stand on abortion. Uh, theologically, they're opposed. And yet you can call yourself, you can be in a religion like that, you can be in a denomination like that, and yet say that I can go and do this and approve this language because I can't put my values on somebody else? Let me tell you something. These are God's values. They're not your values. They're the immutable laws of God. Immutable. Immutable. And we have an obligation to tell a lost world about this. We have an obligation to stand up. This is awful. This is awful. And so when I see this, uh, how how far down the road is euthanasia? How far down the road are we going to be when we know that certain people are going to be born with certain kinds of birth defects and we're going to be making those choices and killing those people? And frankly, how far down the road are we that even after birth, we're going to wind up putting people like that to death? This is a slippery slope. Uh, And so I want you to see how Daniel prays. Because this is the kind of prayer that we need to pray. A heartbroken prayer. Daniel chapter 1, verse, Daniel chapter 9, excuse me, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. There it is. He knew the prophecy. You can read it yourself. It's referenced in the outline. He knew the prophecy. So he saw it was 70 years, and now 70 years have come and gone. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I want you to see this prayer. Uh, This isn't a mere passing prayer or thought, by the way, God, please help us out here. Uh, Instead, he's pleading in prayer and petition, fasting in sackcloth and ashes. Make no mistake about it. This man is deep in the heart of God, deep in the heart of God. I prayed, verse 4, I prayed to the Lord God and confessed. And by the way, that's the nature of every great prayer. Uh, As we reach out to God, a prayer of confession, Lord, forgive me. Help me, Father, to be the, the kind of man you want me to be. Forgive me, Lord. Take these warts away from me. Draw me closer to you. Instead, how many times are our prayers effectively, we don't even mention those issues. Instead, our prayers are like requests to a hotel 
concierge, right? Lord, I need A, I need B, I need C, I need D, and I E, and in your perfect will, thank you, Father, amen. And you don't see this prayer here. You're seeing this guy saying, Lord, I, I have sinned. Our people have sinned. Deliver us from our immorality. And so you see this. Oh, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. There's no excuses. There's no excuses. We made a mistake. There's nothing like that. We've sinned against you, O oh Father. We've done wrong against you, O oh Father. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We are exactly where we deserve to be. We have sinned. We have not listened. We have not obeyed. We have violated your will, and we've done it for centuries. And finally, Lord, you have put us where we deserve to be. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all of the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Isn't that a prayer you could say right now for America? Right now for America, we have sinned, Father. We have sinned. We are exactly where we are because we have fallen away from your will. I mean, this really is resonating with me as I, as I pray about this. Um, verse 8, O Lord, we and our kings and princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The entire country has turned away from you and transgressed, and that's why we are where we are. All of this in this prayer before he begins to even ask, to even ask. It's a, a, a prayer of confession uh, uh, and asking for forgiveness. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. And when you go back into the first five books of the Bible and you read, and you can do this on your own, you read about the blessings of God that Moses promises the people of God. Then turn the page and look at the curses of what God promises to the people if they deviate, if they fall away from the will of God. What will they experience? And it's horrible. And here it is, all right? Their country is decimated. The city is demolished. The temple is destroyed. And their entire families are taken into captivity. And now they are in a strange country for over 70 years. The Jewish people are scattered all over the world, all over the world. Why? Because God made them the promised people. He lifted them up. He poured his will into their heart. He gave them blessing upon blessing. All he asked was faithfulness, faithfulness, and they were unfaithful. And this is what happens, and this is where they, where they are. Uh, and continuing on, you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and are against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us 
Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. Underline that last part. Despite all of this horrific happenings that we've gone through, despite the fact that we are in captivity, we have still not turned away from our sins. We've still not separated ourselves from this sin life uh, and asked you to intervene uh, and asking for forgiveness. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. There it is. This whole prayer uh, that goes on for many verses is a, an incredible masterpiece of worship, an adoration and confession uh, and petition and intercession. And here he is. Daniel at this time is about 90 years old. He has spent the bulk of his life in captivity. Uh, and he has read Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, where Jeremiah prophesies, prophesies, uh, again, uh, well before this event, that they will be in captivity for 70 years. Uh, and, that's, and he was aware of that. And so Daniel had lived through the full 70 years that God had ordained. And so now he realized the time of their deliverance is nigh, uh, and he is concerned about the decline and decay of the people of Israel and so he's praying to God. And when you make this kind of prayer, okay, you make this kind of prayer, you see how God answers. Now, if somebody asked me uh, this morning in an earlier class, said, well, someone they knew said, well, why do we really have the need to pray? Because if it's God's will, if God's ordained all this, why do we have to pray? Well, here's the classic example of why we have to pray. He knew that God had already prophesied that they would be in captivity just 70 years, yet you see him praying because he recognizes that the nation is in decline and in decay, and he is asking that, that they be forgiven, that, that God intervenes on their behalf, uh, even though he knows the prophecy. So remember this, there's two kinds of wills of God. There's the sovereign will and the permissive will. The sovereign will is God says the curtain comes down, the curtain comes down. But the permissive part of God's will allows for human intervention by way of prayer. And God can change his thought process and the direction within his perfect will. And so you see this. That's why we pray. And at the same time, we're asking God to put our spirit in conformity with his will. Meaning what? We're asking God to give us wisdom to understand what he's doing. Wisdom to have the peace to know what he's doing. Wisdom to give our lives to him, to walk in accord with him. This is, a, this is so full of, of lessons for us, knowing how we should live. Now, right in the middle of this prayer, and he's in sackcloth and ashes, and I imagine that this prayer goes on for some period of time. Uh, right in the middle of it, he is interrupted. Uh, and the interruption will be the angel Gabriel coming on the scene and giving him the greatest biblical prophecy in history. This is the gold standard of all prophecy. All other prophecy in the Bible really is measured by this, and I want you to focus in on what we're going to read here. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, 
While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So you get this picture of Gabriel actually just kind of swooping in, right? Just kind of swooping in uh, and now speaking to him. He instructed me, verse 22, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. That's an important phrase, insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Now, let's understand that. As he's praying, the angel tells you, the message is given. All right? You wonder why we pray? As he's praying, God releases this prophecy to him. That's why we pray. Is it possible that if he didn't pray, he wouldn't have gotten this prophecy? Very possible. But because he, he, he was this man who was deeply praying for his nation, and God gives him this window of understanding about what's going to happen to the Jewish people. What's going to happen? When are they going to see their Messiah? When is their city going to be rebuilt? Uh, and, and this phrase here, uh, described as uh, uh, understand the vision, his exhortation here, consider the word and understand the vision. This is highly significant phrase uh, because that is a phrase that was referred to by Jesus on the Mount of Olives when he spoke about the last times. Turn to Matthew 24, verse 15. And Jesus now is speaking about the end days. Verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. All right? There's the phrase. Let the reader understand. Be prepared. Be prepared to understand what has been uttered before. And so when you see the events coming again, be prepared to understand. Jesus has told you that. He's, he's indicated that, that this becomes a significant event. Uh, and you will see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation. What is that abomination that causes desolation? That is the event when the Antichrist will walk into the temple, the rebuilt temple of God, and will erect a statue of himself and demand that everyone in the world worship that statue. He will suspend all of the ritual sacrifices, all of the Jewish holidays, all of them will be suspended, uh, and there will no longer be any ritual related to Jehovah. Instead, they will be worshiping this pagan, this antichrist himself. That is the abomination, understanding it. Uh, and Jesus is telling you to be prepared for that. Uh, and so it becomes a key thing for us to be aware of. Now, all of this is contained within this periodic, this period of 490 years. What you're going to see now is a phrase called 70 weeks of seven. 70 weeks of seven. 70 weeks of seven means a week is seven years. So every time a week is mentioned, mathematically, it's seven years. So what this comes out to, to math mathematically, is 490 years. God is giving a precision ruler in which God's people can understand what his timeline is. His timeline, as it relates to these events, is 490 years. 
and I will show you how you begin to understand the measurement of this uh, and what it refers to. It refers to, first of all, uh, in part of the timeline, the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. It refers to, in the second timeline, the coming of Jesus Christ walking in that last week uh, to, to Jerusalem before he will be crucified. And then there will be a seven-year period of time suspended in space. And that seven-year period of time suspended in space will be the tribulation period that we've spoken about, in which the Antichrist will walk on the scene uh, and terrible events will take place. And so when you put it all together, you put it all together, it's 490 years. 483 of those years will be wrapped up with Jesus being crucified on the cross. All right? And then the last seven suspended uh, in space. Um, and so the prophecy found in verses 24 through 27 uh, is divided into two parts. And let's pull that apart and begin to understand it. Verse 24, 70 sevens are decreed for your people. 70 sevens, 490 years, decreed for your people. Your people will receive what they are supposed to receive under the rule of God in this period of 490 years. And what will happen? And your holy city, Jerusalem as well, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, let's, let's take that apart so that you understand exactly how that's going to take place. All right? So, first of all, uh, decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. There's only one person in the history of the world that allows atonement for wickedness. It's Jesus. Okay? I want you to understand this. Putting an end to transgression, meaning the human spirit being saved and, and being sold out to God uh, and, and atoning for wickedness. Only Jesus, once and for all, atoned for wickedness. And so all of this says putting an end to sin. Only when Jesus comes and is crucified on the cross can we say that there is a finite end of sin right there on the cross. And here it is in this prophecy in which Gabriel is saying that within this 490-year period, God is going to provide for this. All right? Uh, and then to seal up vision and prophecy. What does that mean? It means that at the end of the 490-year period of time, there will be no further prophecy. Why? Because God will have put the world to an end. God will have come back at the end of that 490-year period of time. And now we're talking about that last seven years appended in space. Because at the end of that last seven years, which includes the tribulation, and that awful period of time, we know that Jesus Christ will come back on the Mount of Olives and we will be there with him. And with that period of time, God will eliminate the evildoers. They'll be wiped out. And so now you understand how this is all coming together. Now, verse 25, know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. And let me stop right there so we take that sentence apart. What he's now saying is, here's how you begin your timeline. 
Look and see when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem takes place. Mark it down. And from that point of time until the anointed one, the anointed one, there's only one anointed one. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's 69 sevens. That's 483 years. Mark it down. 483 years. You got to love God. I'm giving you a prophecy. I'm not just saying that there's going to be good times ahead. I'm not just saying that there might be rain later in the week. All right? Or, or I think the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. God tells you, mark this down, 483 years from the moment the decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem, the anointed one, the ruler, will come on stage. And so now, uh, it's amazing as you take this apart, you see the accomplishments. Um, and the second part of the prophecy sets forth a threefold division of the climactic time in human history. He divides it up even further. Okay, 483 years. Now what? Well, the first part of the prophecy is found in verse 24. All right? First part, of the, and then that's where we talked about the insights, about why, the, the, the ending of sin. And so it all comes together. And so this clearly refers to the, the nation of Israel. And so when the, nation, when the angel speaks of your holy city, he is speaking clearly of Jerusalem. So this prophecy is clearly limited to a period of time when the people of Israel possess and occupy the holy city of Jerusalem. If they are not in occupancy of Jerusalem, then this, this prophecy is out of kilter. And so the timetable has no effect when they do not occupy Jerusalem. And so uh, as we understand this and drill this down, it's important for you to understand this. And so all these predictions are to be completed and fulfilled in the course of this 490 years. And there will be no longer any need to effectuate any further prophecy. So let's, let's build this down. Uh, the final goal here is to anoint the most holy place. This is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. There must be a temple in Jerusalem in order for these 490 years to be fulfilled. Um, and if the temple did not exist at the end of that time, the prophecy could not be fulfilled. So don't get confused. We're talking first about the 483 years. That's the 483 years uh, indicating from the start of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the time that Jesus will walk in on Palm Sunday, 483 years. Now, if you have any question about the mathematical precision of what I'm giving you, I want to refer you to a book, and I know some of you have it. The book is entitled The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. Uh, he was a detective in London uh, who was a deeply religious man who sat down uh, with the astronomical authorities, went back and looked at the moons, understood what, when the position was and the timeline, and mathematically constructed all of these events so that he could actually calculate what the 483 timeline period was. Um, and you have to use the Hebrew calendar, the 360-day calendar. You have to take into calculation the leap years, all right? And you have to take into calculation 
going from BC to AD. You have to take that all into consideration. So the first part of this, all right, the first part of this, seven sevens, 49 years, he divided it up. That's when your Jerusalem will be rebuilt. 49 years, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble, Daniel 9, 25. Well, we know, we know from our, our Bible study, we know that in fact, that's exactly what's going to happen. And we know that we can have a precise starting time uh, historically. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, what's important here is that it is in the month of Nisan. And Nisan is April. And Jesus would walk in on Palm Sunday, what month? April. Okay? April. So, Let's understand this historically. We know the beginning point, all right, in the month. We can actually construct that and construe that specific state. We can pinpoint it as occurring in the year of 445 B.C. That is at point eight of my outline, 445 B.C. Look what happens here. And understand this, okay? So even though they were told that they would only be in captivity 70 years, what's happened is, that Jews would begin to matriculate back. They would begin to matriculate back uh, to Israel. But the, but the city wasn't rebuilt. They would go back, but they would still be under attack, and so they would not be rebuilt. They really did not retain their identity as a specific country because they had not secured the walls. And so now, now we're talking 445 B.C. This is probably about 80 years after Daniel had this prophecy. I want you to get this timeline. So 80 years goes by. The walls aren't rebuilt. There is still not an identity of the city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is heartbroken about this. Heartbroken. So he makes this pitch. I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Verse 2. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So even 80 years after the prophecy of Daniel, Jerusalem lies in waste. Waste. All right? And now Nehemiah is with trepidation approaching the king uh, and speaking to him about this. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. And you got to love that. He prays as the king is speaking to him. And this is why I say that we need to speak to God 100 times a day in our prayer life. Even when things come up, this king's asking him a question, and while the question is being posed to him, he's praying to God, Lord, what words should I say? How do you want me to respond? How do I act, Father? You see how God wants you to live? You don't have to have these things handled in advance or have a speech made up in advance. You sit there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who will give you the words when you pray like that. Then I pray to the God of heaven and I answer the king, if it pleases the king 
And if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a timetable. Isn't this extraordinary? Did you see this? How God is laying it all out, how the prophecy came out 80 years before, 483 years from the date that the decree comes out to rebuild Jerusalem. It will be rebuilt in the first 49 years. And then after those 49 years, there will be a period of time. And finally, the Messiah will come out. The anointed one will step forward. And so you understand this. So this first division in the prophecy consists of seven weeks of seven years or 49 years. During that 49 years, the city is rebuilt. We know this historically. The walls are rebuilt. It's not an easy build. Nehemiah is there, and he's being attacked, attacked constantly, even as the, the bricks come up to put the, the city together and the trench is built. But it is they're under attack, yet God's promise is maintained. God delivers his promise. And so after 49 years, the city was rebuilt, the walls were repaired, the city was restored, uh, and so the first part of the prophecy is fulfilled, period. Put it in the bank, completed. So people say to you, you don't believe the Bible, do you? Oh, yeah? How's this? 49 years, the city's rebuilt. Uh, and so you see how God answers. Now, after that, uh, now we have to account for 434 years. Okay? 434 years. That's the second part of the prophecy indicating that the anointed one, the Messiah, will step out and come for forward. This is by far the most precise and finely tuned prediction ever made by any religion, any sacred text in history. Nobody else has it even close. And so it's very simple. You take the countdown and you begin from 445 BC and continue counting down for exactly 483 years to the exact month. It started in the month of Nisan. It will end in the month of Isan, but it will be 483 years later. Now, we know the exact month because the decree to build Jerusalem was issued uh, in the Hebrew month of Nisan, which we saw uh, in uh, uh, Nehemiah. And counting the years, you must use the ancient calendar the 360-day calendar, uh, and, and that's the calendar that the Jews used. Uh, and if you use the chronology and you count with care and you take off the leap years and you don't consider the leap years, you chop off those extra days, you will find that exactly 483 years exactly after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, the first Palm Sunday in April, A.D., the year 32. Can I get an amen? I mean, this is extraordinary that God could write history with that precision 
and give it to the people of God so that they would know it. 483 years to the date. And if you want to see the mathematics construed precisely, pick up that book, The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. Pick it up. Uh, I know some of you have it because you've mentioned it to me. And I've had this book for a couple of years and have studied it. It's not an easy read, but the pages that relate to the mathematics are effectively precise. And so the people of Jerusalem should have known. The people of Israel should have known. God wrote it. It's in his holy book. They had it available. But what happened? What happens is that they fail to go into the scripture. They fail to be part of scripture. Their leaders, the Pharisees, the religious elite, no longer taught it. This is astonishing to me how this could happen. But it could happen to us. Because if we're not in the Bible, if you're not studying and reading the Bible, how is God going to speak to your heart? It's only when you're in the Word and you're focusing on this that you understand exactly what God has in mind for you. Look, folks, this book is the roadmap to heaven. All right? You could have guys come up here who can be so charismatic and so attractive and so winsome in terms of personality. But if they don't give you the Bible itself, discount it. You understand? Discount it. Because that's what the Antichrist is going to do. This guy's going to be unbelievably attractive and have such charisma. And people are going to look at him and they're going to be drawn to him. But he's not going to speak about God's truth. He's going to give them their own opinions, and people are going to be drawn to it like a moth to a flame. And God is warning us. God is warning us. And so this is, this is an amazing picture. And so, you know, uh, turn to John chapter 5. John t- chapter 5. <laughs> Look what Jesus says to them. Verse 39. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you, pres- you possess eternal life. How about that? You're studying the scripture because you think by studying them, you're going to understand and have eternal life. Look what Jesus says. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. How's that? They testify about Jesus from the beginning of time, Genesis through Revelation. This Bible testifies about Jesus. Every single book testifies to Jesus, and yet they, they were ignorant and refused to understand Uh, And so there they are on Sunday in April in the year 32, shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. And as that part of the group itself says, blessed is the king of Israel, the mob shouts, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. How about that? The very chosen people themselves, right? Refusing to honor God. I mean, if you shake your head, You shake your head, and I say to you now, folks, look at America. Are we any different? Look at this country, which was founded on on spiritual Christian principles, and look at where we have devolved to. Are we any different? I submit to you that that we're not. not. Now, now I've left off the fact that there's this appended one-year, seven-year period of time, okay? We've covered 483 years right through the crucifixion of Jesus, but there's a seven-year period yet still out there, that has not yet come into effect. I want to draw this attention to you. And so as you read here, verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. What does that mean? He will be crucified. He will be crucified. He will be murdered. He will have nothing, meaning he will have no family. He will have no physical descendants. And so that's what you see. Now, continuing on, 
the people of the ruler who will come, ruler who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What does that mean? It means that after Jesus is crucified, those who are in authority, and then we're talking about the Romans, would come back and destroy the city and the sanctuary. They will come back. That's why Jesus said that, that not one stone would be left on another when he looked at the sanctuary. Meaning what? Meaning God understood that Rome would come back and would dismantle Jerusalem and the temple stone by stone so that there would be nothing but rubble. Now, you know, I've often thought about that. How could they, they bring it down stone by stone? What is that about? Well, as, as I've studied this and read, read other books, there was so much gold in the stones of the temple that the only way they could get the gold out was actually by burning it. So they would take the walls down, put the walls into a furnace, stone by stone, so that the gold could be construed out of the, the stones. And what was left? Nothing but a pile of rubble. Moreover, and this happened in the year 70, more than one million Jews would be killed. And, and these other references tell us that the blood in the city was ankle deep. One million Jews executed uh, at this period of time, uh, and uh, many, many thousands, thousands taken into captivity. Now, continue to read as you bring this great prophecy to an end. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Now, I want you to understand that even though uh, it does not separate it now as a last seven, that in that phraseology, uh, theologians now understand that that is language referring to this last seven-year appended period of time and space. War will come and continue until the end, the end of time. And desolations have been decreed. Now, now he talks in verse 27 about he. Who is he? He. He is the Antichrist. He is the, the servant of Satan. He is the personification of evil. And let me make this clear because a few people asked me last week. Uh, is the Antichrist Satan? No. Uh, uh, is, is Lucifer Satan? Yes. Lucifer and Satan are the same. Lucifer is also referred to as the morning star. Make no mistake about it. Satan is the puppet master, but the Antichrist is a human being who will give his heart to Satan, who effectively will be uh, part of Satan. Satan will be with him, just like the Holy Spirit invests itself in us, but he is a human being. He, the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many, four, one, seven. What does that mean? It's that last seven. The Antichrist is going to sign a covenant of peace with the Jewish people and the Arab people. The Jews and the Arabs will come together in a peace treaty, the likes of which the world will never have seen before. And they will have peace right there in Israel. And the Jews will rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount right now where there's a Muslim uh, church. Right there, the, the temple will be rebuilt, and the world will be astonished, and the world will be awestruck, and they will view this as some great powerful event, and they will believe a lie that this man 
uh, is a godly man. And then it goes on and says, in the middle of the seven, middle of the seven, meaning three and a half years, in the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, meaning what? Meaning he will walk into the temple, he will stop all sacrifice, all ritual, and he will have erected a statue of himself and demand that the world will worship him and bow down to him and all other sacrifice and ritual to Jehovah will cease. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed, is poured out on him. Ladies and gentlemen, I have given you the history of what will happen in this world. God is in control. He took you 483 years, showed you precisely, here is my Messiah, here is my son. And then he takes you and tells you that, that the temple will be destroyed. Then he takes you to that last seven years and tells you about this evil person who will come on stage, who will then, who will then halfway through it demand to be worshipped. An abomination of desolation in that very temple will take place. But in the end, he will be destroyed. He will be wiped out. And, and peace and righteousness will take place forever. And the very completion of the prophecy will take place. And as I said to you before, we win. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your words. Lord, I thank you for your clarity and your precision. I thank you for the way you've elevated the scripture so that we can go out to a world and teach them. Lord, don't let this just be intellectual titillation. Father, let us leave here with this message resonating in our heart, promising to go out and teach it to others, going and representing it to a world that's lost so that they understand what's coming down the road, to understand what happens when you give your heart to evil. We pray for our country, Lord. We use this prayer of Daniel and raise it to you, Lord, as we pray for our country as well. Bless our people. Be with them this week and continue to bring them back safely to study your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.